This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number 12 of the series devoted to the mysteries of scripture. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and we're going to read the book of the Revelation chapters 1 and 2. This series of studies in a very, very difficult subject is being brought to a conclusion this evening by considering the three references in the book of the Revelation to the word mystery. Now, we could start straight away with the reference at the end of chapter 1. But I think we should be very unwise because it's going to refer to the seven churches and we ought to know a little bit about them. (coughs) First of all, with regard to the book of the Revelation itself and its relationship to the mystery. You know in Ephesians chapter 3, verse, it says that this mystery of which we are particularly concerned in this chapel, the church of the one body, brought into existence after the end of the Acts was finished, this mystery was hid in God. The epistle to the Colossians, speaking of the same calling that was administered by the Apostle Paul as a prisoner. He said it was hidden away from the ages and the generations. It's one of the characteristics of a mystery that it should be hid. And it's also a characteristic of the mysteries of the scriptures that unless God reveals it, no searching and no learning will ever discover it. So it's very appropriate that the book that's going to give us these mysteries is called the book of the Revelation. And as the word revelation is made up of the word veil in the original, it means to unveil something that's been covered and secret. The book of the unveiling of Jesus Christ. You see, the way that some of us talk about our Saviour, you'd think that he was known from beginning to end and everything that's written about him is completely understood. And yet the Apostle, he says, Confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Is there any one of us that could begin to explain that to ourselves or anybody else? But the book of the Revelation says, here is going to be an unveiling of Jesus Christ. We have to get to the last book in the Bible and the end of this present age when the Christ is back again here before some of these problems will begin at the very beginning, to be solved. We have coined a little expression, and we put it back to front this time. When mystery ends, history begins. That was true of the people. When the history of Israel came to an end, and they became a scattered people without a definite nationality, without a definite country, without a king or without a priest. Biblical history came to an end. And mystery took its place. That's where we are. We may read with wonder the promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but we don't steal those from Israel. God has guaranteed that what he promised he will perform, and he never promised that to you or to me. We don't go back to the promises made to the fathers, 
We go back to a promise that God says he made before the foundation of the world that was never embedded in scripture and only revealed when Paul became the prisoner of Jesus Christ and that took place when the Acts of the Apostles ended. Not the beginning of the Acts, but the very end. We know all that. So we, here we have the last opportunity to test these questions of the bearing of the word mystery. Now you notice we were reading chapters 1 and 2, we ought to have gone on to chapter 3, but time wouldn't permit. Let us look at this um, opening chapter of the book of the Revelation. Because it's no good lifting a verse out of a passage and trying to explain it. That's the, that's the terrible thing that happens. You pick on some little verse, ignore the context, you don't know whether it's addressed a Jew, Gentile or Church of God, and away you go with it to the disaster or for the faith, because at long last it doesn't work. Now here we have John receiving this revelation, and verse 5 says that our Saviour's title, among other things, is the Prince of the Kings of the Earth. Now what are the Prince of the Kings of the Earth to do with the church to which you and I belong? We don't belong to any kings of the earth, or any national movement like that, but this is. This is the time when the kings of the earth are going to be put into their right place. And so we get these words in the next verse. Unto him that loved us and hath made us kings and priests. Now there are some Gentiles who believe that they are kings and priests. But the only reference to being made a priestly nation is given to the people of Israel. And it's the Apostle Peter writing to the dispersed of Israel who said about a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Neither you nor I are ever going to be part or lot of a holy nation or a royal priesthood. This belongs to Israel. Leave it there, as God has said. And then you see further, in verse 7, And they also which pierced him. Well, strictly speaking, every one of us who are sinners can be said to have pierced the hands of the Son of God. But you know as well as I do, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. They also which pierced him. And that's the blessed day that's coming. This people will one day look upon me whom they pierced and they shall mourn and then a nation shall be born in a day and all Israel shall be saved. Where is the church at this moment that we're looking here that we belong to? We don't fit. It's trying to put a square peg in a round hole and that, that's the dislocation that takes place. You see, all scripture is for us from Genesis to Revelation but all scripture is not about us. So there's a tremendous bulk of scripture that belongs to others in different callings. So we go down this chapter, but we can't take step by step. But do notice this. Verse um, 10. I was in the Spirit. Now that comes four times over in the book of the Revelation. I was in Spirit. And that's the last one. I was in Spirit and I saw the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. Well, it hasn't come down yet, friends. And yet John says he was in spirit and saw it. That's the very same expression here when it says, I was in spirit on the Lord's day. And so many of God's people say that's Sunday. I was in spirit, taken by prophetic power on a Sunday. It's anti-climax, isn't it? This is the day of the Lord, the great thought in the Old Testament prophets. The great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's nothing to do with any day of the week. I was conveyed by the Spirit miraculously to see the yet future day of the Lord. 
And from that standpoint, he writes the whole book. Well now, he saw a vision of Christ as a great high priest. All the description of him. The great high priest. And will you notice that in verse 16, it said, And out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. I hope you know the book of the Revelation enough to know that when you get to chapter 19, it's the king of kings and out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. He is your king priest. The first chapter and the closing chapters and the one symbol. The, the sharp sword that goes out of his mouth. And then, verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Where do you read about the hell and death? In the chapter 20, there is hell and death once again and he has complete control. Don't you see? To try to lift out bits and pieces from the book of the Revelation is to ruin it. To see it's all one story from beginning to end is to accept it as God wrote it. Well now, that brings us to the mystery. First of all, why the emphasis upon candlesticks or nightstands? Well, it's an Old Testament symbolism. You're back in the tabernacle. You're there in the tabernacle with the seven-branch candlestick and with Christ as the high priest, and that is the symbol of these churches. You will remember that we read just now that there were those who were gate-crashing into one of these churches pretending they were Jews. And were not. Well, I believe that means what it says. We can't spiritualize it. Do you ever find a Jew who is not moved by the Spirit of God, trying to get into a church, the idea is you would turn away from it. But this is a Jewish company. And the others are said to belong to the synagogue of Satan. So you see, we're, we're completely removed from the church of the one body in which the dominant number are Gentiles. We are back again, where the people of Israel are almost on the tiptoe of their emancipation and blessing. Why rob Israel of this precious thing when we've got such abundant blessings of our own that so many of us have despised and set aside? So now we've got here what he says. Write, I'm looking at verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Now as that stands, that gives an idea that the book of the Revelation divides up into three parts. The things which thou hast seen is chapter 1. The things which are, are chapters 2 and 3, the churches. And those who take that view go out of their way to ransack history to try to discover seven phases in Christendom that will fit it. And then, finally, the things which will be hereafter, what is called prophecy at the finish. One of those one or two who have given this attention, whose names, they can't say that they are triflers, they say that isn't the meaning of this passage at all. Now if you've got access to the original, or some of you have, you follow it with me when I'll give you another translation. Write the things which thou hast seen, and what they are, even the things which shall be hereafter. So do one thing. You've seen the priest in the midst of the candlesticks. Now write what they are, and when you know what they are, it's the future thing that's coming. Just one thing. So we discover that this question of the book of the Revelation is intimately bound up with these seven churches. Some of us know this, but I, I mustn't um, presume. I'm just going to ask you to look at one or two things that I've said in chapters 2 and 3 and see whether we can tear these seven churches away from the 
prophetic day of the Lord, or whether it belongs to the definite book that follows it. All right, let's look. To every church it says, I know thy works. Every church. And when you get to the great white throne, a book is opened, and they are judged according to their works. Oh, I know some people say, but the great white throne is the judgment of all the ungodly that have ever lived and died. That's what you say, friends. Doesn't say so there. Blessed is he that hath a part in the first resurrection, on him the second death hath no power. So they belong to a company that could be associated with overcomers and yet not quite made the mark. Fancy uniting the overcomer in the book of the Revelation, chapter 20, with the great ungodly. See, they try to drag it in and they've lost the teaching. So here we have then uh, the emphasis right the way through, I know thy works, I know thy works, all the way through. And then notice the rewards that are going to be given to these churches. Verse 7. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Revelation 21, 22. In the last chapter, he still speaks about these churches. The angel is still there, he hasn't left it. The angel of the churches mentioned all over again, and now they have a right to the tree of life. Well, then the next is, the next church, the same thing, uh, I know thy works. But you see that in verse 11 it says, He that hath an ear, letting hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The second death is never mentioned anywhere in Scripture except in the book of the Revelation. And this is something that could be a warning to a church who are overcomers. It's nothing whatever to do with the punishment of sin and the ungodly. This is a warning that they may not get the overcomer's prize, but they may have to forfeit and lose, as we find that it's suggested later on. Should not be hurt of the second death. And then when you come to the, say, the end of the uh, chapter. You are a Christian. You have been saved by mercy and by grace. Are you looking forward to the day when you will be given the chance to dash in pieces like a potter's vessel some poor riches that are now going to be put under your control? I don't know whether you're looking forward to it, but if you belong to this church, this is what it says. Verse 26, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Are you going to explain that away, or do you believe what it says to be true? What a difference if he goes into all the world and preach the gospel, and here you're going to beat them to smithereens and rule them with a rod of iron. Nothing whatever to do with what we call a church position in any shape or form. How could people be so blinded as to read these words and not see how opposite they are? And so we could go on. In verse 5 of chapter 3, He that overcometh, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. And the book of life is only mentioned in this, in this epistle and once in the epistle to the Philippians. But it's an integral part of the overcomer in the book of life in the, um, the Revelation. We've imagined it's the book of eternal life, but it's the book of martyrs. Because, you remember, it says earlier uh, that, that they, they said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life, and you shall not be hurt of the second death, and your name won't be blotted out of the book of life. And so we might go on, but the last passage, 
verse 22, verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. And that's the last one. And so we turn to its fulfillment in the Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And we're going to explain all that away and say, oh, that's happening now at this moment and has been happening right down the Christian age. This is specifically to do with this dreadful anti-Christian reign that comes at the end. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years are finished. This is the first resurrection. The others have to wait. Well, I, I want you to deceive that we cannot possibly understand even one verse in chapter 1 if we've got crude ideas with regard to this extraordinary and difficult book. You will notice that it says in chapter 1, as we read, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show, to show. Now, I would like you to turn for a moment to um, 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is going to have a bearing upon the next uh, mystery that's going to be brought before us. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed the good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, here's the same word as the book of the Revelation, he's going to show it in this way. He shall show what? Who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords? Do you know where to find those expressions elsewhere? Yes, in Revelation 19. He will show, when he appears, who is King of kings and who is Lord of lords. Now, keep 1 Timothy before you again for a moment. Look at chapter 1. Verse 17, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. A King eternal, immortal, invisible. Come back to chapter 6 again. King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen or can see. So the first chapter says, King, immortal, invisible. The last chapter says, King, immortal, invisible. And then comes the condescension of chapter 3.16, right in the middle of it. And it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested, was manifest in the flesh. He's manifested the flesh and started this marvellous witness by being born at Bethlehem. He's going to appear and manifest that he's king of kings and lord of lords. And when he comes the second time, instead of wearing a crown of thorns, that head that once was crowned with thorns will be crowned with diadems as king of kings and lord of lords. Why not leave it then? Why take this book which has to do with the king and his kingdom and with the people of Israel and Jerusalem? Why take it 
and explain it all away so that you can fit some little co- uh, collection of verses as something for your own comfort. You're losing your own blessings if you do, because as it were, while you hold something in your hand that somebody is offering you or you're being offered, you can't take it. And that's what's happening so many times. You're hanging on to things that belong to others and it closes your eyes to the things that may be yours. Well now, as time goes on in this witness so rapidly, we'll take our next reference from the mystery of God in chapter 10. It says in verse 7, chapter 10, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel. Now do you notice, there were seven angels that were addressed in connection with the churches. And there's not the slightest indication that there was another lot of seven angels, it's still these seven angels. These seven angels are an integral part, they belong to this people that were there and will be on the earth when this draws nigh. And in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished. Now, in the epistle to the Colossians, if you'd like to turn, just for a moment, you'll see that there's one aspect of the mystery of God, which has been explained by the Apostle Paul, uh, but we can't explain even the mystery of God in one verse or one approach. And so it says in uh, Colossians 2, we'll read the first Three verses. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The uh, critical texts, which the authorised version had no knowledge of, read this. To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, then a dash. To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, Christ. That's all. And then, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, he is being brought before them as the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God, the head of the church. Now, (coughs) another aspect is being brought before us in the book of the Revelation. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. The mystery is only introduced in Scripture because there's been failure. Every time something failed, instead of God being put, as it were, to say, now what can I do? He perfectly prepared, but he hadn't told anybody. When the evil one brought about the blindness of Israel, so far as any any teaching of the scripture was concerned, if Israel went, the one channel of of blessing was dried up and no Gentile would ever look in at all. Where can you find anywhere in the whole of the word of God that a Gentile was ever to be blessed outside of contact with the people of Israel? Our Saviour said, salvation is of the Jews. And then they're gone. And the evil one thought, now let's put a stammer in the works. What can God do? And then God said, I had a secret which I told nobody. It's not even put in the Bible. And as many a Christian will stick you out, it isn't there today, even though you show them the chapter and verse. But right before the foundation of the world, he chose poor outcast Gentiles. 
and he called in under the terms of a dispensation of a mystery. And the only one who could tell them was Paul the Apostle as the prisoner of Jesus Christ and it has nothing whatever to do with the day of Pentecost or with anything that had to do while the people of Israel were on the scene. And of course if you say that to some people, well, you know you're going to get into trouble. But we we get used to getting into trouble. It's worth it too, friends, because sometimes a person is first aggravated and then he's uh, annoyed I think sometimes he's convicted. We hope so. Well, here we have it. Now, look, look at chapter 11 as a sequel. Verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded. So it's the seventh angel still, when the mystery of God is finished. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world. Is anyone going to say that means the church? Well, I don't know. Such fantastic things said you don't know, do you? But he's the prince of the kings of the earth. And here's the moment when he takes to himself his great power and reigns. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 17. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come. If you're reading the revised text, you'll see a wonderful thing has happened. You know the words that which art and wast and art to come is a New Testament way of speaking of the sacred name Jehovah, which is made up of parts of the verb to be and parts of the verb to become. In the epistle to the Hebrews, when Paul was writing to the Hebrews, he said to them, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today. And forever, that's the name Jehovah. And here, he who was, and is, and is to come, is the New Testament way of speaking of the Old Testament sacred name Jehovah. But here's the strange and wonderful thing. The very last part of it is not there. If you've got the revised text, it says, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art, and washed. He doesn't say which art to come, for he's there. The glory of prophecy is it fulfills itself and the very name is being fulfilled right to the letter. At last he's come. So there's no need to say, and after come, for that to be unbelief. It's there when the seventh angel sounds. And he goes on to say, There was taken to thyself thy great power and hath reigned, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. Chapter 1, there he is, in the temple of God with the candlesticks, and the white robe of the priest, here again it's open, is a temple judgment. Here is the king priest, and here are the nations of the earth, and there's not a single word in that passage which can refer to the church as we understand it today. It has to do with nations and a king and ruling with a rod of iron which has yet to come before there will be a blessed peace and a perfect kingdom. In verse 10, I heard a loud voice, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. What's going to happen here? For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. 
So that's a part of the mystery of God finishing. Satan has had a long lease. God said to Abraham that the children of Israel were going to suffer a long period away from the land of promise until the iniquity of the Amorite was full. And that was about uh, 400 years length of rope given to the Amorite. But this mighty being has had, according to the scriptures, about 6,000 years length. And he manifests it right to the very end that he's just the same as at the beginning. I suppose you remember that in Genesis 1 verse 2, the word deep is the very word translated bottomless pit in Revelation 20. It begins and ends the story of the Bible. The bottomless pit and a serpent who came into paradise is in the first and in the last. With this exception, that instead of coming into paradise, he was put into the bottomless pit. But the moment he's let out, he goes out to deceive just the same. Incorrigible. That's finish. So you see, these things are all being brought right to a conclusion. The mystery is being fulfilled, and as a mystery, it passes away. Well now, there's one other aspect that we must introduce before we finish, and that is found in chapter 17. And this is a subject all to itself. Chapter 17, and there came one of the seven angels, still the same as seven angels, friends, you notice, all a part of one thing. There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me. Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Very unpleasant language, isn't it? So is wickedness. So was the sacrifice of Christ to be offered for us. A very unpleasant thing. We mustn't shut our eyes to it. And you who are in contact with the outside world, or if you only read the newspapers, you know that the advocacy of that woman Jezebel is becoming a doctrine. Which doctrine I hate, said the uh, the Saviour in the chapters. Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, what did he do? Why he entangled Israel by by getting them to be all tangled up with fornication. And it's going on and it will be practically a religion before it's done. That's what's happening. Horrible things are taking place. So it says here, this has to do with the one who is that awful character. Now look at the description. Verse 4, And the woman was arranged in purple and scarlet colour and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. And when you turn the page you'll find a description of the New Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is not a whore but the bride of the Lamb, which is gold and precious stones and pearls. The one is the satanic travesty of the other. There are three occurrences of the word beginning in the book of Genesis. I don't mind somebody coming to tell me afterwards that I made a mistake and then I'll put you right, you see. There are three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first one. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That's the second one. And the beginning of his strength was poor old Reuben who lost his birthright. There's the three. Two of them, you see, a failure. One in the beginning is the name of Christ. You know that? Revelation actually says that he is the beginning of the creation of God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. So one is going to succeed. But look, in Genesis 10, the travesty, Babylon, Babylon, Nimrod, and all that awful thing. 
And Babylon is not merely a city, it's a system. Jerusalem is not merely a city, it's a system. And the one stands for God, and the other stands for evil. And here it said that this Babel is the mother of all the harlot abominations of the earth. Look at verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. We have no place for the Roman Catholic teaching, but the Roman Catholics were not on the scene when Babel was instituted in Genesis 10. She is one of the daughters of this company. But there's any amount more, friends, than a good many Protestants will wake up to discover that they've got traces of this Babylonian thing many, many times. What a dreadful shock it must be for somebody to wake up in a church uh, where they've got hanging over the pulpit a little silk banner which says IHS on it, and then to be shown by testimony that it was Isis, Horus and Seb, the trinity of Egypt long before there was a Christian. And the little innocent buns you have on Good Friday, they're all there mentioned in Babylonianism. All there. Well, you're not going to waste our time going into what Babylonian teaches, but say, oh, watch out, friends. See positively that what you believe is standing square on the word of God and rightly divide the word of God so that you've got the right peace, otherwise you'll build on the wrong foundation nevertheless. So now we have this Babylon. And it says in verse 6, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints and with the blood of martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now that word admiration, of course, uh, has to be read. Uh, it wasn't admiring. It's the same word as the word wondered and it's the same word as the word marvel. So I suppose the translators didn't like to say marvel three times over. They fell into the... Uh, difficulty, and so they got out of it that way. Marvel with a great marveling. In chapter 18, you discover that this is a great city, or at the end of chapter 17. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Babylon is the great city in the country we now call Iraq. And one day, there's going to be a, a migration of power, especially financial power. Well, you've only got to have a, a, a tiny little place there for a man to have so many millions a day as his income, you see. Oh, yes, it could easily be. And Babylon has been all the way through persistent, and it's there still. And Baghdad is being built and built and built and built until they're going to be building right on top of ancient Babylon and won't realise that they're restoring Babylon. Nobody will know. They call it Baghdad. The word of God is going to be fulfilled and it's warning us that the whole movement is the nations of the earth are going to have that as a central place at the finish. Don't ask me how or why, I don't know, I'm only just drawing your attention. Now in chapter 18, it says, uh, verse 15, the merchants of, of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and with precious stones and pearls. You see the travesty of the heavenly Jerusalem. Mystery Babylon. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company of ships and sailors and as many as trade by seas to the far off and cried. 
Then when you look at the words, the solemn words which are quoted from the prophet Jeremiah, which had nothing to do with the church but with this city, it says, verse 21, And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. Listen to it. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee, and the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee, for thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all that were slain upon the earth. Now friends, in our opening hymn this evening, we sang Hallelujah. And there are some folks who break forth in meetings. Hallelujah. Well, well, we can't stop them, of course. And uh, <clears throat> it reminds me that <clears throat> in the New Testament, the word is spelled with a capital A, whereas in the Old Testament, it's spelled with a capital H. That's the difference between Hebrew and Greek. And uh, once when I was in Scotland, they told me, Can, coming from London, I didn't sound my H's. I said, you can't hear, I say them so delicately. But I said I'm on the side of the angels, for they don't say theirs. Now it says here, And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Here's the first hallelujah coming. See, Babylon's gone. Satan's cast out. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. The nations of the earth are now under his control. So at long last, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And it says, a great voice saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honour and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with a fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his, of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah. And a voice, uh, the vo- a smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and four living creatures fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen. They're saying hallelujah now, aren't they? Here they're all going at it. Hallelujah. Then look at the opposite, you see. Here we have. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And that is a title of Christ. For in the first chapter he's called the Almighty. And the word omnipotent is simply the word almighty in Latin. Let us be glad and rejoice. And give honour to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Here's the bride in contrast to the harlot. And so we get to the end of the book and you see in the last chapter you have back again as you were in the beginning. There is the paradise. Verse 2. In the midst of the street of it from the other side there was the tree of life. There's the tree of life. And in the same chapter, verse 8, And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I heard them and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. The angel's been there all the time showing him these things from the time of the seven churches. And then, here's another proof 
that the whole, whole of the revelation is one. Verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Now you try to make that fit any time now. How can God add to anybody the plagues now that haven't fallen and will not be falling for, until this time of prophecy? This is specifically to do with that period and that time, and also the blessings. Verse 19, And if any man, um, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So we've got now the thought that if you keep the words of the prophecy of this book, chapter 1, you will be blessed. And if you add to them or take away from them, you will be just judged. But it all belongs to the same period. Blessed is he that heareth, and they that keep them. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep them. That's chapter 1. And the alternative in chapter 22. All one book. All belonging to the day when the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, having to do with a king-priest, having to do with overcomers who shall sit with him in his throne, and not a single reference to the church, as the Apostle Paul indicated, for they do not belong to that calling at all. Their sphere of blessing is where Christ sits, at the right hand of God, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, where he ascended far above all heavens. But of course, as we know, that is another story. Oh, well, now you think to yourself, oh, I wonder whether we've done justice to it. Well, we haven't, friends. But to try to cram uh, the examination of these most difficult passages in about 45 minutes, I suppose, is looking for trouble. But the Lord knows. And I do trust, especially those of you who are going to listen to this presently, that you will be true Bereans. Don't listen to what I say and shut in and say, oh, wasn't that interesting? No, no. Let the tape be heard two or three times this needs be with an open Bible and search and see and test every point. And wherever there's a departure from what God has said, well then you'll be doing me a kindness as well as anybody else to just put it on one side. We are not infallible, but we have an infallible book. And we have a God who is glad to see a little company of his people meeting at any time. And a book of remembrance is written before him, we are told in one prophet, whether that's the case now, something very similar, I'm sure, is taking place. So we bring this series, 12 studies in the mysteries of Scripture to an end this evening by looking at the three that are written in the book of the Revelation.